Straits brings legal and business insights at the intersection of the shipping and energy sectors. This podcast series offers trends, developments, challenges and topics of interest from Reed Smith litigation, regulatory and finance lawyers across our network of global offices. If you have any questions about the topics discussed on this podcast, please do contact our speakers. Thank you for joining today's podcast, the third and final in our series of three on the law of shipbuilding. In today's episode, we will talk about cancelling orders or enforcing delivery and warranty claims. So in case you've forgotten, I'm Sally-Ann Underhill, a partner in the transportation group of Reed Smith. I specialise in shipping and deal with all types of shipping disputes in the broadest sense, including sale contracts, logistic issues, and of course, shipbuilding. And I'm Phil Maloof, also a partner in the transportation department of Reed Smith. My practice focuses on all aspects of dry shipping, including charter parties, bills of lading, and shipbuilding disputes, as well as logistics. And Sally-Ann will begin by talking about cancelling shipbuilding orders. So recently, there has been a race for space at yards. However, we are now hearing warnings about a slowdown in the world economy, especially in China, and seeing rising interest rates. So if a slowdown or contraction of the Chinese economy is foreseen, there may be a host of buyers looking to rethink their decisions to order new buildings. Likewise, the technical developments that Thor mentioned in our first episode, the availability and price of different types of fuels, and world events shape the demand for new vessels. There may be buyers who are now finding that they have ordered vessels which are surplus to their requirements. So if you're a buyer, in what circumstances can you cancel your order? So most shipbuilding contracts define a limited number of events which entitle the buyer to cancel. And you can sometimes um, see cancel or cancellation referred to as the right to rescind or rescission. And these tend to include, and I'll give you some examples, things like delays in delivery beyond a certain number or combination of permissible and or non-permissible delays. And they'll all be defined in the contract. Or you could have a situation where there's a failure of the vessel to meet certain performance criteria, such as speed and consumption warranties or other technical criteria or some other milestones in the construction process. You might have an insolvency of the yard or perhaps unusually a total loss of the vessel before delivery. So these buyers contractual remedies or or cancellation or rescission will typically entitle them, i.e. the buyer, to a refund from the yard of the instalments already paid under the contract or will allow the buyer to claim under the refund guarantees that I spoke about in episode two. However, because these rights to cancel or rescind are purely contractual remedies, they would not on their own give a right to claim wider damages for breach of contract. The buyer might want to have such a right to claim damages if it has, for example, sustained financial loss, because, for example, it's had to find a substitute vessel to perform a contract that it was due to perform with the new build and it had to cancel. But, and Thor and I have discussed this previously, when a buyer is looking to exercise its contractual right to cancel, 
it should follow really carefully the contractual requirements for the termination of the shipbuilding contract. And by that, I mean that you need to observe the number of days notice required and make sure that the notice is sent to the correct address by the correct means. And that sounds so simple and straightforward and perhaps obvious that you'll be thinking, well, that's that's nothing. But you'll be surprised at how often people make a small mistake. And the difficulty is that if these formalities are not complied with, the right to cancel or rescind the, under the contract could very well be lost, as it only exists by virtue of the express agreement, which means that you have to follow the terms of that express agreement. And as I say, a contractual right to cancel or rescind a contract is completely separate to a right to terminate and sue for damages for repudiatory breach of the contract to common law. Typically, such a right, that right to damages for repudiatory breach, will only be available for a breach of a condition. And by that, I mean a term that goes to the heart of the contract or a breach of the contract that is so serious as to, and the terminology used is, to deprive the other party of all or a substantial part of the benefits of the agreement. A vessel not being ready for delivery under, sh under a shipbuilding contract will not be a sufficiently grave breach to have that right to terminate and to sue for a reputatory breach. So although you might think that that's serious enough, it isn't. It may be possible to terminate a contract using the contractual mechanism for rescission and at the same time, preserve the right to damages for repudiatory breach of contract. But to do so, you have to have a really well-drafted termination notice. And there's a good example of one in the Stochnia Gidnia case, which I'm, I can't pronounce, as you can tell, um, which is a 2009 decision. And I'm not saying that the termination notice in that case would automatically give you the right to both terminate under the contractual mechanism for rescission and claim damages, I'm saying that you have to really think about exactly what the wording of, the, of your notice would have to look like. And that's an example of one that worked. So if a buyer does manage to terminate the shipbuilding contract for repudiatory breach, and if the yard has not restricted its liability under the shipbuilding contract, the normal measure of damages for the buyer's loss of bargain will be the difference between the contract price and the market price of an equivalent new building judged as at the delivery date. And if anyone who's interested, that comes from the Sale of Goods Act, section 51.3. So often these things delay and develop, and the question that arises is, can a buyer reject a vessel at the time of delivery? And whilst theoretically possible, a buyer's right to reject a vessel at the time a yard tenders it for delivery is extremely restricted. So specifically, most shipbuilding contracts expressly exclude the statutory implied terms that you find in the Sale of Goods Act, such as compliance with the description, satisfactory quality, or fitness for purpose, which have their own specific rights and mechanisms for rejection. And at common law, so when you haven't got a statute and you're just relying on the common law, the buyer can only reject the vessel if it differs in a manner sufficiently seriously from the contractual condition, so in a way that's not de minimis. And in practice, it's almost impossible to predict what is or what is not de minimis. And the buyer is not likely to have notice of all of the elements of the vessel's non-compliance with the contract. 
So typically, the parties will agree in the shipbuilding contract itself that the vessel is deliverable if it is in class without conditions or recommendations and not subject to defects or deficiencies which affect the safe commercial operation of the vessel following delivery. Based on my experience of how these clauses work, the difficulty can be that class approval. And if at all possible, I would suggest that buyers should look to tweak the wording insofar as they possibly can, so as to leave open an argument that the class approval is not the last word on the vessel's deliverability. So that was all looking at it from the buyer's perspective. But moving on to the position of the yard, what can the yards do where the buyer is refusing to take delivery? Again, looking at the Sale of Goods Act, Section 51 this time, provides that where the buyer wrongfully neglects or refuses to accept and pay for the goods, the seller can maintain an action against him for damages for non-acceptance. The shipbuilding contact text is a bit different though, because if you think about it, the yard has been building this vessel for a long period of time. But in the shipbuilding context, that would mean that the yard will have at least a right to damages for non-acceptance. And that would likely involve the difference between the contract sale price and the price the yard manages to achieve by reselling the rejected vessel. But there are difficulties for the yard with this and with that reselling. So there's been a fairly controversial decision. Um, It's called Caterpillar and John Holt, which I can pronounce, 2014. And that said that the effect of Section 51 of the Sale of Goods Act is that the yard does not have a claim in debt for any unpaid balance of the contract price of the vessel. So that means that the yard cannot simply claim for the delivery instalment, with the result that the yard needs to try to resell the rejected vessel to recover any losses. And where the vessel is bespoke, and involves perhaps that new and innovative technology that Thor was talking about, the resale market might be very limited. And then, even if the yard is in the position where it has been able to resell and it knows what its claim is, the buyer is likely to be a single purpose entity with no assets. And so the yard may have no way of securing any any claim that it may have. Also, the yard might only have a parent company guarantee for the payment of the buyer's instalments under the shipbuilding contract. And that guarantee may well not cover claims in damages as opposed to claims for non-payment of instalments. And to make matters even worse, if the buyer has no right to cancel, and even if the design of the vessel is entirely bespoke and unique to the buyer, it's very unlikely that the English courts or an arbitration tribunal would grant a mandatory injunction forcing the buyer to take delivery by specific performance. And that's because English courts tend to shy away from the idea of granting injunctions where damages are an adequate remedy. So what can the Yard do to try to overcome these difficulties? It could, for example, make a change to its shipbuilding contracts to provide for larger instalments earlier on in the whole building process and a smaller final instalment. Or, or and, the yard might try to make a change so that its entitlement to the final instalment becomes due against the performance of a particular milestone. 
such as, for example, the issuance of the class certificate, and is therefore not dependent on that delivery moment. There's also an Overton judgment or judgments from the Supreme Court in the Res Cogitans case and O.W. Bunker's cases, which appear to have overruled the Caterpillar decision, albeit, as I say, only Overton, with the effect that the seller or the yard will have a claim for damages for non-acceptance. And the fact that the seller or yard will have a claim for damages for non-acceptance would not rule out a claim in debt for the remainder of the sale price. Thank you, sally I'll just cover now the topic of warranty claims under shipbuilding contracts. Now, a yard will typically provide a warranty which covers the vessel, the machinery and the equipment for 12 months after the vessel's delivered and accepted, um, which is typically referred to as the warranty period. So if a defect occurs during that warranty period, the yard will be obliged to uh, repair or rectify the defect at its cost. And the contract will sometimes provide that um, identical expenses of getting into the yard for repairs, sorry, the incidental expenses of getting, uh, taking the ship back to the yard for repairs will be covered by the yard as well. However, other losses like um, the loss of use of the vessel to the buyer arising from the defect, so the loss of income trading the vessel, uh, will usually be borne by the buyer under shipbuilding contracts. Where buyers are increasingly placing orders for vessels incorporating comparatively untested, new and innovative systems, the scope for these warranty issues to arise is increased. There are therefore some points that buyers should be aware of. Firstly, warranty claims are subject to really strict time limits. So, for example, in the case of Neon Shipping and Foreign Economic and Technical Corporation of China, the relevant warranty clause in the shipbuilding contract provided that the vessel and its parts would be seaworthy and contractual in all respects and free from defects due to defective design, construction, calculation, material or workmanship, collectively guaranteed defects. Now, the yard's liability for defects was conditional on the buyers giving notice of the warranty claim within 30 days of the expiry of a 12-month warranty period. Now, in this case, the vessel's cranes turned out to be faulty, but the buyers had missed that warranty claim deadline. They tried to argue that the warranty clause should actually be broken down and read in two parts, with the words, free from all defects due to defective design, construction, calculation, material or workmanship, being subject to that 12-month plus 30-day warranty period, and then separate section saying seaworthy and contractual, that the vessel should be seaworthy and contractual in all respects. And they said that that seaworthy and contractual wording shouldn't be subject to the time limit that the rest of the warranties were. Effectively, what they were trying to do was split up the wording of the warranty time bar clause into two parts, one subject to time bar and one not. The court rejected this argument. There just wasn't enough ambiguity in the wording of that part of the shipbuilding contract to even call into question whether or not the whole of the warranty um, was subject to the contractual time limit. So, as a takeaway point... these contractual time limits for warranty claims are very strictly enforced and it'll be difficult to get around them. 
Secondly, buyers should note that yards typically do limit their liabilities for breaches of the warranties. So even where a vessel is really unique and a substitute might not be available, shipbuilding contracts will usually exclude liabilities for the loss of the use of the vessel. For example, the wording from the new build con contract excludes liability in contract, tort, including negligence, breach of statutory duty or otherwise for any loss, damage or expenses caused as a consequence of a guaranteed defect, which shall include, but shall not be limited to, loss of time, loss of profit or earnings or demurrage directly or indirectly incurred by the buyer. Now, these very broad types of contractual terminology restricting the yard's liability for warranty claims have been very broadly interpreted in favour of the yards. So, for example, in the case of Star Polaris against HHIC, it involved a new build vessel which suffered from a serious engine failure. The buyers claimed a drop in the value of the vessel, even once repaired, and also damages for their loss of income during the period of repairs to the ship. Now, Article 9.1 of the contract uh, provided that the yard guaranteed the vessel was free of defects for 12 months from delivery. Um, Article 9.2 set out the procedure for notifying defects, and Article 9.3 set out obligations in relation to repair and replacement. Article 9.4 then said, the builder, so the yard, shall have no liability or responsibility whatsoever or howsoever arising for or in connection with any consequential or special losses, damages or expenses, unless otherwise stated herein. And the court was asked to determine what was the scope of the words consequential or special losses in 9.4. Did it encompass the buyer's claims for the drop in value of their vessel? And the court held the words consequential and special losses, damages or expenses did mean all the financial losses caused by the guaranteed defects above and beyond simply the cost of replacing and repairing the physical damage. Despite the words consequential loss usually being interpreted to mean the losses falling within the second limb of that familiar test in Hadley and Baxendale. The court in this case found that the restriction of the yard's liability wasn't limited to those losses falling within the second limb of Hadley and Baxendale. So a claim from the drop-in value of the ship was also a claim for consequentials or special loss and was excluded by those contractual words in Article 9.4. The court's interpretation of those words limiting the yard's liability was influenced by a broader interpretation of the contract in this case to the effect that the yard's obligation to repair and replace really was exhaustive and nothing else was recoverable above and beyond that yard complying with those strict obligations. So how can parties to shipbuilding contracts limit the scope for warranty disputes in future? As we mentioned before, um, including new and innovative systems, sometimes based on experimental designs in modern shipbuilding, will no doubt increase the scope for warranty claims. So in order to avoid disputes, buyers could bring warranty claims promptly and make sure formalities bring the claims are complied with. 
buyers could make sure they monitor construction and ensure that any key performance criteria are tested during the C trials. And buyers could also conduct more rigorous testing shortly after delivery, just to make sure they do their best to identify any other issues with the ship well within that warranty period. And yards could, if they haven't been involved in the design, make it really clear that their warranty is limited to defects in workmanship and materials only, and not defects in design. Thanks very much, Thor. Thank you for joining this episode, our third of three, from me, Sally Ann Underhill, and Thor Maloof at Root Smith. This concludes our series of three podcasts on the legal aspects of shipbuilding. In our first episode, we covered the initial stages of a shipbuilding project, including how new technologies impact specifications and performance criteria, changes to the shipbuilding contract, and the main types of contracts used to document shipbuilding deals. In our second episode, we discussed refund guarantees and delays during construction. We do hope you have found this series helpful. Trading Straits is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's energy and natural resources or transportation practices, please email tradingstraits at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher and reedsmith.com and our social media accounts at reedsmithllp on LinkedIn, Facebook and Twitter. This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.